Hey folks, it's Omishade Bernie Scott from the Black Girl's Guide to Surviving Menopause. When I started this podcast last year, I was really focused on and committed to curating an intergenerational space where we could talk about aging, intimacy, vulnerability, and change. And I also was centering my own story. The story of my mother, the story of my grandmother, the story of my aunties. I was motivated by my own lived experience as a cisgendered black heterosexual woman born and raised in the American South. So while I am motivated by my story, I also want to explore the multiple truths of aging and menopause in an inclusive way that doesn't further marginalize or oppress people who don't identify as women. Menopause does not happen just to heterosexual cisgendered women. There are people who identify as femme, gender non-conforming or non-binary who want to access this space and be a part of the story. I'm really excited to share with you the interview that I did with my dear friend, Mo George. Mo is a New York native, activist, philanthropist, amazing person who wanted to share their story with me from their perspective as someone who identifies as queer, as someone who identifies as butch, as someone who identifies as lesbian. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We both are 1960 babies, so we share this generational footprint and this moment to talk about what this looks like. This is Omi Shade Bernie Scott. Welcome to the Black Girl's Guide to Surviving Menopause. Introducing Mo George. Hey, Omi. How you doing? I'm hanging in there. I can't complain. I'm so glad that you and I get to have this conversation because, you know, you're like one of the very first people I ask, hey, man, if I do this podcast thing, will you be willing to be interviewed? And you were immediately like, hell yeah. Yeah, that was a no brainer. (laughs) So I'm really appreciative. And I, I want folk to know how we met before I start asking you questions. So I met Mo in... Uh, the 2015 or 2016 at the bold, which is black organizing for leadership and dignity retreat. And you had gone through the director's cohort, right? Mm -hmm. Which cohort were you in the 2015 cohort or the 2016 cohort? Uh, 2015, I think. Okay. Then I met you in 2015. And so for folks who are not familiar with bold, bold is this national leadership, somatic practice, grounding, learning, fellowship space for Black organizers from across the country. And they bring folk together in cohorts. And then in your cohort, you learn all manner of things about yourself and how you move in the world as an organizer. And they also give you tools to help you, especially Having the two different tracks, they give tools for directors who are responsible not only for leading large organizing campaigns, but they also have staff and people who they're supposed to be supporting and and developing stronger relationships with and whatnot. And you also need a space that's Black and safe, like a Black-ass, safe-ass space. So that's how we met. And we met that retreat and that the retreat is when all manner of shenanigans goes down because that's when people get their bold names. It's, you know, it's very much, <laughs> it's like camp mm-hmm. <laughs> at that moment where people mm-hmm. are enjoying themselves and we're remembering all the things that we learned. And we're also meeting some people we haven't met before. And 
What's your bold name, Mo? Um, so the first one was Mo Truth for you. Uh huh. That was the first one, and then the second one was the White People Whisperer. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. that's right. The White People Whisperer. Uh huh. Like, Mo always talking to white people. <laughs> Listen, you gotta get them together and be like, little. <laughs> uh, I was like, one of us gotta gather them. Somebody got to do something with them. Well, I know you're not white people whispering right now. So, and at any rate, so we, we, we connected then and we just like stay connected, but I, I definitely know that our relationship got deeper when we went to Panama. Right? Yeah. Oh my God. Such a beautiful time. Yeah. And so we, again, were with a group of badass black organizers and activists from across the country and, Carissa Lewis, who is the executive director of C2, formerly known as the Center for Third World Organizing, started this fellowship program for folk who were just like, look, I'm tired. Like, I'm tired of doing the organizing. I'm tired of doing the advocacy. I'm tired of doing the activism. I'm tired of being in these streets. I'm not going to stop, but I'm tired and I'm crispy and I need a break. And so I word, I'm going to take y'all out of the country. You ain't got to do nothing but show up at the airport with your passport and the ticket that we purchased for you. Get on the plane and come where we send you to. Yep. And, and we got sent to Panama and Mexico together. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And uh, that was dope. And it was in Mexico when I was sitting down talking to you and Aja Taylor, who's our little movement sister, and Carissa, and I think Taja Lindley. And I think Naima and I was like, look, I was feeling real burnt at the edges. You know, I had just been terminated from a a movement job that I felt very passionate about. I had never been fired before in my entire 50, that was 51 years of life. I ain't never been fired before ever. Mm -hmm. Now I've quit in a huff, but they fired me and I was like, not feeling good. And y'all were like, look, man, you were like, Umi. Take a break. And I was like, I don't know, Mo. You're like, do it. I was like, well, what am I going to do? Nothing. <laughs> Basically. Just chill. Just chill. And so I did. I took a break. I took a sabbatical. And during the sabbatical, I had this idea that I wanted to talk to folk who are in our age group. So you and I are a year in part. Cause you, are you 66 or 65? 66. Right. So we're a year apart in age. We were the OGs in this space anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And oh, it was like me, you, Mama Nia, Terry. Mm-hmm. Um, who else is an OG? Denise. You know, you got folk who were like those 60 babies who were just like, you know, what are we getting ready to do now that we in our 50s and still committed to liberation and, you know, healing work, but like are tired. And so I wanted to create a space for us to talk about what this this aging thing is, this menopause thing is. <laughs> but before <laughs> I start asking you like hella questions, I really want the folk to get to know you, Mo. So take us, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us your story. Like where Oof. did you grow up and where your family's from? Like what you know, all of that. So for me. 
I was raised in the Bronx, the top end of the Bronx, uptown, uptown, um, on 229th Street, the borderline of the Bronx and Mount Vernon. And, you know, in public housing up there. I was raised by my grandmother. I was with my grandmother from the time I was six months old um, until she passed when I was 41. Yeah, about 41, I'd be best. And that time, you know, the projects aren't, you know, the projects and, well, public housing is a community. People forget that even now. It's a community. It's a community of folks that raise you, that look out for you, and very much had a had that feel and still kind of has that feel when I go up there now to visit. I still have friends who still live there. And my grandmother who raised me is West Indian. She and my dad and my aunt and uncle were born in um, the Virgin Islands in St. Thomas specifically. Mm-hmm. And I was almost raised in St. Thomas. I've been going to St. Thomas since I was six months old. Every summer, I spent every of my summers until I was 17 in St. Thomas. Like I didn't know what it was to spend a summer in New York. And there, I was actually put in summer school. So I learned to cook. I learned to knit. I learned to sew. You know what I mean? Oh, there, hold on. Wait, wait. Back up. Back up. You know how to knit and sew, Mo? I know how to knit and sew. Okay. I'm mad. I'm mad. I'm real mad. I'm big mad right now. And I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm going to need you to knit me some shit. At some point. <laughs> yeah, I can knit and sew. Yep. Sure enough. Uh, so we were in, you know, raised there and they didn't play like, you know, like I said, summer school was real school and then came back and ran the streets of New York. Um, as I got older, you know, I grew up a little rebellious and I think a lot of that was attached to me coming to terms with my sexuality. I realized pretty early on that I was attracted to women. I think I probably was like maybe about seven or eight, but mm-hmm. I didn't have any reference in my household. Right, there was nobody that was openly gay, so you know I often felt different with a lot of the friends that I was hanging with. But none of them made me feel different. They was just like that's just Mo. Mm-hmm. But I think me coming to terms with that made me a little. I was a little rebellious towards my grandmother. I went to school when I wanted to. I wound up selling drugs on the side, and then I met a mentor who basically put me on the pathway to go to college. And I, I sort of met her, not sort of, I met her after a fight that I had gotten kicked out of school. And she was like, why are you doing all of this? Sign yourself out of school and go take your GED, which I did. And then wound up going to college. I went to the State University of New York College in New Falls, upstate New York. And the one thing I remember is when she put me on the bus to go to New Falls for my first day, she was like, the person I put on this bus I don't want to be the person that comes off this bus. And I took that seriously. And when I got on campus, like it was a whole new world. I saw people doing like different community service, like the Black Student Union, the African Women's United, student government. And I was just intrigued by meeting all these black folks that was leading these clubs and finding out my history. Because you lived in the projects. And when I grew up in the projects, basically it was diverse, right? There's My grandmother actually was the first black family in the building. The building is 15 stories tall and 17 yeah, 17 apartments to a floor. So it's a huge building, but it was everybody in it. So now I get up, I go upstate to school 
and I'm thinking that, wow, this is a black campus. Then I go in a classroom and I don't see no black people. Then I realize, ooh, this is really not a black campus. It's only the difference. Geographically, where is New Paltz? It is, it's in the Mid-Hudson. It's in the Mid-Hudson region. So it's like halfway between, say, the Bronx, really where I was, and Albany. So if you go upstate New York towards Albany, towards Binghamton in Canada, it's Mm -hmm. exit 18 on the New York State Thruway. Got it. So it's really sort of in the beginning, but but it's also a different world than the projects, right? And it was the first place that I, I went to that you heard, like I heard white people use the word nigger to us derogatory. Right? Because it was like, hey, we ain't. Like they were talking directly to folks. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like with anger. Like with anger, we say, hey, that don't happen in the projects. What's that about? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, exactly. Like, what? What? And then there was like protests and everybody got involved, you know, as a result of just some racist, there was a cab station there that was actually run by one of the grand poopers or whatever the heck they call them of the the Ku Klux Klan. And basically the students ran the cab company out, out of town, basically, Mm -hmm. because that's how they made their money with students. So students just boycotted them and took the other cab service till they went out of business or they went to another part. They stopped doing that. So all of that led me to like learn around community service and giving back and the whole nine. And that kept me in school, right? Because I really wasn't like focused on school, but I, I did enough to make sure that I stayed active. So I got C's and occasionally B and A's and like black study classes that I liked. But I started doing community work and then got into organizing kind of backwards because a friend of mine invited me to be part of um, NYPIRG, New York Public Interest Research Group, and they were doing surveys to preserve a lake. So they were like, she was like, oh, you, you know, you want to make some quick money? And then, you know, you, you, are, you in college, you ain't making no money. You know, you need to... This was eighty. I started school. I started college in eighty six. Yeah, I got, yeah, yeah. I got academically dismissed. Went to a two year school, and then came back to finish the four year school that I started. Uh-huh. So when I was in school, she was like, "Oh, come take these surveys with me." And I was like, "What?" And she was like, "Yeah." And and she was like, "Yes, yeah, to preserve the lake." And I was like, "Hey." I, I'm from the projects. I like lakes. Let's do it. So started going around her. Doing, you know what I mean? I didn't know. Yeah, I like lakes. I, I didn't know it was organizing. I just was like, hey, I seen a lake. It looks pretty. We don't have those in the projects. Let's, you know. So as we are, as we're going and we're, we're like doing the surveys and then they had scheduled the town hall and the whole night, the whole process, never did I know that that was organizing. I just knew it was fun. I was like, oh, this is fun. And then we won. We won the campaign because they were trying to dump oil in the lake or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we won. I was like, oh, this is dope. Still didn't know sort of around organizing. Left school, right, graduated and started working in a bank. And Chase Bank is like customer service. And the same friend of mine, Yadira, who mm-hmm. got me to organize with Nightberg, saw me and was like, yo, what are you doing working here? And I was like, you know, sidebar. Sally Mae. Sidebar, I think Perg is a part of everybody's organizing history. Like legit. Yeah. I, I don't know not one person who didn't yes. at some point either organize yes. a Perg yes. Or was yep. approached yep. by Perg to be like, yep. want to do some That's organizing. Right. Crack, That's crack. right. Yeah. 
It cracks me up. I mean, that's right. I mean, it's no way that you're doing, that you're organizing New York. The night perk isn't the initial way you got connected to organizing. Mm-hmm. So this that, same that, sister, the same person says, hey, so, yeah. so this person, she comes into the bank and she's like, what are you doing? She's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, yo, Sally May." You know what I mean? <laughs> Needed. I was like, Sally may need her money. What do you mean what I'm doing here? You know, I had to pay back them student loans, right? So I was like, Sally may need her money. And I needed a job. And an aunt of mine's worked at Chase. So she kind of like helped me get in there. And I was just doing customer service. So I started out as a temp. And then they wound up hiring me. And I was just doing customer service there until she came in and she was like I was like well where do you work and she was like oh I work at 1199 I work at the union and I was like oh what do you do there she was like remember the stuff that we were doing at Nightburg and I was like wait what people get wait that's a real job job and she was like yeah I was like wait 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 that's a job job and she said yeah 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 it's a real job and, you know, because I thought that everybody that was working, you know, like you said, that was working with Perk was like volunteers. I didn't know, like, they were actual organizers that, and it never dawned on me. So I was like, she said, yeah, I do that as a union, right? I bring people into the union for various hospitals. So she was like, she gave me her card, and she was like, hey, if you ever want to get out of here and come check it out, let me know. So this is the time where Chase and another bank in New York called Chemical mm-hmm. was merging, and I wasn't, and they were going to let people go. And I'm like, this isn't my career. I don't want to be here a long time. So they was going to keep me because I was cheaper labor mm-hmm. and let somebody older go. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm out of here. Let me, let me and call wait, a friend of mine. This? This, this is like early nineties, mid nineties. Mm-hmm. This was, wow. What year was that? Cause I, I left, like I said, I left Newports, came back. So now we're probably up to like 94. Got it. Yeah, because I started at eleven ninety nine and ninety four. Yeah, we start we started our like organizing our own thing, organizing nonprofit journeys about the same time because I started right ninety five. Nice, yes. (laughs) So we, yes, we did. So then when she came to me and she was like, I saw what they were doing at Chase. I was like, Nah, I'm out of here. So what I did then was I called her and I was like, Hey, you know you talked about that union stuff is it you know you think I could still get down and she was like okay she said they're not hiring for organizers right now she said but they're hiring for temps to Mm -hmm. do like admin work and she said once you in you in so I said okay let's do it so I took uh, a admin position and worked in the legal department as an admin assistant and then until they opened up organizing positions and probably it was out maybe about um Probably about four months in, she was like, oh, new organizing, a new organizing department is looking for an organizer. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I was like, oh, well, you know, I wanted to know a little bit more about it. So I kind of shadowed her. But she had like a member meeting and then she had a protest. I, I went to a strike line, my first strike line with her. And I was like, oh, shoot, this is dope. So I went with her and then I was like, oh, yeah, I can get this and applied. And yeah, now it's yeah, 27 now. years later. 
Where is this sister now? Are y'all <laughs> so so I, I actually recently got in touch with her because she hadn't been on social media, but okay. then she came on Facebook. Okay. And one of the, the weird reasons why I keep Facebook is the connections is to be able to connect with folks. Yeah. And she moved last time I knew. Uh, she had moved to Virginia. She was still doing work and organizing. She actually was working for, you know, 1199 is SEIU, a Service Employees International. She was working for SEIU. Okay. I'm glad y'all reconnected because there, there yeah. are who are who came into our lives, kind of put us on the right path to kind of like, mm-hmm. I mean, you want, I cannot imagine you, Mo, being a bank executive <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. So to like, think that you were working at Chase and if this sister had not come back into your life and been like, nah, 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 you know that thing we was doing, you want to do that and that you also follow that. So I find that really interesting. I I think a lot of people, we had those, I don't know, almost like guardian angels who Mm -hmm. were like, hey, same thing that happened with me is that a brother who I worked with at Shaw University at UNC Chapel Hill, started working for this leadership development program for young people who wanted to go into nonprofits doing social change work. And he was like, I think you should come work with this. And I was like, Mm. what is it? And he was like, it's called Public Allies. And I was like, what is that? And he was like, I promise you, Public Allies is dope. You can do training, leadership development. You can help these young people figure out like what they really want to do do you want to do it? I was like, all right, word. And it's because of Daryl that I started mm-hmm. doing this work. Fun nice. fact. That's a fun fact. When I started working at Public Allies in North Carolina, Michelle Obama was a director of Public Allies in Chicago. What? Yes. Nice. There were six Public Ally sites and North Carolina was one of them. Milwaukee was one. Chicago, San Jose, DC, Delaware, and I remember when we were going to have an all staff retreat and everybody was like, you need to meet this sister named Michelle. Michelle is the bomb. Her staff is the bomb. There's some badass organizers who've been doing stuff. They're, they're amazing. And I was like, okay, word. And so we went to an all staff retreat and I met Michelle Obama and they were like, yo, and her husband's an organizer too. His name is Barack. I was wow. like, oh, word. And that was 1995. <laughs> you just don't know like how your world yeah, Pat. She was the executive director of Chicago and then the other person who I worked for was the ED here so everybody on staff we got close we spent time together we threw down together and so I got real close with Michelle's staff which is like really really ironic to me that when Barack Obama started running for office the narrative has shifted because mm-hmm. the narrative when I first heard her name was like Michelle Obama, Michelle Obama, Michelle Obama. She's amazing. She's the bomb. She's a badass. She does all this stuff in Chicago. Oh, and she's also married to this, this dope brother. He, mm. he, 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 he kind of had a name. He was like, his name is Barack or something like that. I was like, Barack or Baraka? Cause you know, I'm thinking about Amiri Baraka and they were like, no Barack. I was like, oh, okay. Word. Didn't give it any other thought until he showed up and did that speech at the democratic national convention. I was like, Wow. Hold up, hold up. I think I know who this cat is. And then he ran for office and I was like, wait, this is crazy. So anyway, not to go down a rabbit hole around our, our journeys to doing social justice work. I want to ask you some more specific questions about this. You knowing when you were little that you were attracted to girls and then what was coming out for you like 
Did you come out in the 80s? Did you come out when you were in high school? Did you come out in New Paltz? Like, what was that process uh, like for you? And also, coming out in a West Indian family. Oof. So. Um, <laughs> you said oof. Oh, oof. Yeah. So, my coming out story was crazy because I actually didn't come out to anybody because to me, the most important person for me to come out and the one person I feared the most was my deeply religious grandmother, mm-hmm. right? She was who whose opinion I cared about most. And I really didn't care, not that I didn't love my family members, because I did, but I just, like, she was whose opinion that I cared about most. Mm-hmm. So to me, she was the one that I wanted to talk to and the one who I was afraid to come out to. So I was in college, came home from school one year. It was like the year before I graduated and we were having a family reunion and my grandmother didn't go, but it was like my brothers and sisters and everybody went. And then I brought the girl I was dating to the family reunion on the bus. And and my family members were like, you know, my brothers and sisters was like, yeah, mm -hmm, that makes sense. Right. And, and still didn't, come out to them. And then that was the same year I decided to just tell my grandmother because I had been on campus. I had, you know, like this was my first real girlfriend and I decided to tell her. And we were in the house and I told her, I said, listen, I like girls. And (laughs) it was really scary because like no matter what my age is, I couldn't come home from college and be in her house and not to go to church on Sunday. Because on Absolutely. Sunday, she'd be like, tap, 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 tap. Um, Excuse me, uh, you going to church? <laughs> and she wouldn't be going. She didn't care how old I was. You went to church. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to church. Mind you, I live way up in the Bronx. And my church is way in Harlem. She didn't care about all that. <laughs> so she was like, you, if you're going to come home and stay in this house, you got to go. To you church. going to church. <laughs> Right? Out, don't worry about me. You going to church. So mm-hmm. so that's what I did. So to be able to tell her this was like nerve wracking. And what folks don't realize is that the person whose approval you want the most is the hardest person to come out to. And their reaction literally defines your world. Right? So if it's a rejection from the person you most hold dear, it affects you in ways that people just cannot imagine mm-hmm. because it is a an eternalized rejection. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, that's, that's heavy. An eternalized yeah. rejection. You just grab yeah. hold of it and you just yeah. hold on to it. When that happens, no matter what happens, you're never enough mm-hmm. because the one person who you see at the time that validates you as a person has rejected you. And, you know, a lot of the times, especially if you come out younger, you don't know the tools to help you work past that. Like, I'm just learning those tools and I'm, you know, we in our 50s. So, you know, you were basically saying like, you knew. Yeah. That when you came out to your grandmother, not only the grandmother who raised you, but your West Indian grandmother, your West Indian grandmother who loves you. Jesus, very much. This was yes. going to be a process. Yes. It was going to be a process because I was like, I was, I was ready for it. I was like, I'm going to get all kind of Bible quotes. Honestly, did not think it would go well, mm-hmm. and I was prepared for that. I was like, this is not going to go well. Thank goodness I'm at college and I could just go back to school. 
So I told her and I said, you know, the girl that you hear me, you know, talking to on the phone, the, the girl is my girlfriend. And, you know, I said, so I'm gay. And she went, literally, she went, oh, in her beautiful West Indian self, she said, oh, you're a he, she is what they call you. Uh, say it again. A what? He, she. A he, she. Oh, Put it together. He, she. <laughs> so I said, uh, yeah. Okay, guess so. And defining word, she goes, I don't care. You're a child of God and you're my child. And that defined my life. Why am I why am I crying? Yeah, I get emotional too. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, like what a beautifully sweet thing to say, you know, yes. and it could have gone like so far to the left, right? And you'd be like preparing yourself to like not have a relationship with this person who was so important to you. That's such a sweet thing to say. Yep, sure oh. enough. It was touching and I understood it even more because years later my cousin came out. And my cousin, which is my grandmother's sister's daughter, came out. And my aunt called my grandmother and was reeling about my cousin coming out. And, oh, I, I don't want all that shit in my house. And, and carrying on, carrying on, carrying on. And I remember my grandmother, I mean, lacing into her. Like, why would you do that to your child? That's not your child no more. That's not your child. So you're just going to show your child out in the street? that You're going to carry on like that with your child? I mean, and she went ham on my aunt for what she did to my cousin. And she was like, you go, you better go find that girl and bring that girl back in your house. And two days later, my cousin was back in the house and my aunt had apologized because my Ooh. grandmother was like, that, that ain't for you to judge. You ain't no judge. God, God is the judge. Because my grandmother had the beautiful, and this is why I tell people to this day why I actually don't fellowship in a house of worship. My grandmother knew the word. She didn't know man's in person, in interpretation of the word. Mm -hmm. She knew the word. And she knew that regardless that we are all God's children. And if you're rejecting me in the name of God, then you're saying that God made a mistake. And your grandma's like, and God don't make no junk. God don't make no mistakes. Mm -hmm. mm. So, so whatever you are, whatever you you are, that's what you were supposed to be. That's what and, you're and you'll continue to be a child of God. So I was determined to live my life out, like not no more closet, and do what I could do to make sure that other people could live their life out too, right? And it was based that I knew even now that she's gone, I still know that she's watching over me because mm -hmm. doors and things that I know I'm not smart enough to do. Um, but yeah, that defined me and I've never been in from that. I love it. Well, you know, as somebody who I identify as cis-hetero and I identify as an ally and I have such deep, deep loving relationships with so many amazing queer folks. And I'm wondering for you, what has been the journey? Because I say that because when I first started like, wanting to be more um, politicized around my understanding of people's identity. That was in the nineties. And so folk weren't using queer folk were using LGBTQ mm -hmm, mm -hmm, to stop mm -hmm. the LGBTQ. And then 
more letters got added to it over the last 20 to 25 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. People using queerness as a kind of a larger, I don't know, mm-hmm. umbrella for folks yep. to kind of live under has been the thing. And I'm just wondering for you, when you, you were already clear, you were already living your life, you weren't in the closet. What language did you use to identify yourself? What have you felt around the changes in language and identity? You know, you are OG. And so I'm like, mm-hmm. there's conversations I've had with folk who I went to college with who are gay boys and they call themselves queens or mm-hmm. fags. Mm-hmm. And then the mm-hmm. girls that they hung out with when we were in college, they called them fag hags. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. you're a fag mm-hmm. hag. I'm like, is that appropriate language to use anymore? And mm-hmm. I, you know, I think, mm-hmm. I think about how language has changed so much, even for somebody who identifies as li- being a part of that community. And what mm-hmm. that's like for you as somebody who's older now. Mm-hmm. So when I came out, like we didn't have all the terms that we have. For me, it was sort of limited, right? You were either a bull dagger or a dyke. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was fortunate enough to find mentors because when I came home from school, I wanted to still be in community, right? And now here it is, I was out and I was blessed to find what is actually the oldest black lesbian organization in the country. It used to be called Salsa Soul Sisters. It's now called African Ancestral Lesbians United for Societal Change, so Alush. Mm-hmm. Um, and they used to have meetings at the LGBT Center here in New York. I met this lady who was organizing at the time named Candace Boyce, and she became my mentor, right? And Candace, too, identified as a masculine identified lesbian. And she was older. She was older than me. You know what I mean? And she kind of took me on her, her wing and like showed me the roots and how to get involved and took me to LGBT protests and things like that. And we fought side by side, right? Like I fought with her, right? Protests and, and all of those things. And then some things that folks don't know, um, a part of my organizing, I worked at Empire State Pride Agenda and um, I started as the membership coordinator. And then I was like the, I forgot what I grew into the last position. What, what's but it called again? It used to be called, it's no longer around. It's called Empire State Pride Agenda. And as what ESPA is known for, it was started for and it accomplished to win marriage equality in New York City and state. And we did that. I was a part of the team that developed the strategy and we won marriage on the city level. And one of the I got to train numerous people. And one of the people I got to train was Edie Windsor. And Edie Windsor was the person, was the first person to sue the United States government um, around marriage equality because her and her partner. And then she was one of the couples that were a part of the lawsuit that won marriage equality across the country. I think Um, I read Edie's story because she had been with her partner for a long time. Yeah, 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 yes, yes, yes. A long, long time. I didn't know know this. You know, (laughs) it's a new shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, So I worked on when we won Marriage Quality in the city. I was one of the team members that celebrated that win. I don't, I don't, like people who don't know, but I don't share the story as much as I probably should. But, Mm. you know, so I say that to say now looking at the way young adults are coming up and being able to self-identify themselves like they, them, they, them, Mm -hmm. and all the other, you know, letters um, to me makes me feel proud because I feel like at 
I had some parting opening the door just a little bit mm -hmm. and a little, little bit more in order for people to feel comfortable enough mm -hmm. to know that they can identify, right? So now, instead of being a bulldog or a dyke, now they're stud, aggressive, or, you know, masculine-centered lesbians, and all these other terms that folks use that actually wasn't the language used when I was coming up. It was just like, you know, people were like, oh, you a bulldagger. Oh, you a dyke. And I was like, yeah, that's actually not offensive to me because that, mm -hmm. that's what I am. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you, that's not a dagger. Like, try something mm -hmm. else. Like, calling me black. Right. I'm black. And I'm right. proud. I'm a dyke and I'm proud. Like that's those right. aren't those aren't war words for me, right? Like you gotta find something else, dude. And it's because of the work that I was doing with Candace and with Alouche and then with Espa that made me strong enough to not be not take any of those words as war words against me. Those were words that defined who I was. Mm -hmm. Um and let folks know, like, especially younger, I want to let younger folks and even now with my work I do now. I want I walk the world as an out butch lesbian, right? Because even butch is a, a newer term. Mm -hmm. And I do it intentional because I want other butches who are coming after me to see that don't have any bars. Don't let them put any bars around you, right? Expand out. You know what I mean? It's like like we say in bold, expand your width, right? Unclench unclench your butt cheeks. Like <laughs> let the world know. Right? <laughs> let the world know that you're here and take up space. Especially as black women, right? Because I'm a black woman. Like take up space. Take up a lot of fucking space. <laughs> you know what I mean? Take up a lot of space. You earned it, right? This like everything that's happening is on the on the backs of black women. Take up as much fucking space as you want and if you gay that's it ever got a problem with it that's you so like for me you can't come at me with the bible and the whole nine because i also know that the bible was used against us to keep us enslaved mm -hmm. right that's not the real word the word was manifested the bible is the, the most rewritten book ever like right mm -hmm. so stop that you know mm -hmm. what i mean so for me, it's it's really a sense of pride now when I see young adults self-defining. I'm to be honest, I have a hard time keeping up with all the names. So <laughs> I try, and I don't want to be disrespectful. So I tell people, like I tell people from the get-go, like, listen, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't want to misgender you. So I, can I just call you Mo? So now, even now, when we go around, and people ask preferred gender pronouns. I tell people Mo. Right. Mm -hmm. And I tell people I don't get offended by he or she because I've been called he so much in my life that I'm a 54. I'll, I'll be arguing with people all day for everybody that calls me she. I mean, he. You know what I mean? I mean, I done had the cops call me on me in the bathroom. I done had all kind of horror stories. Um, and I'm just too old now, right? I'm like, look, I just want to pee. I don't care if it's a he. I don't care if it's a he bathroom, a she bathroom. A right. toilet is a toilet, right? The toilet doesn't care whose whose ass is sitting on it, no, <laughs> right? The toilet is so facts exactly. So, and I tell people like, yo, when the toilet cares, then y'all should care, right? Sure. If the toilet don't care. Mind your business. Then you should chill out. Exactly. Well, this, this actually leads me to this other question. So you talk about Candace. You, so you have talked a lot about these mentors, these, these people mm -hmm. that have been like critical, mm -hmm. this journey you've been on. Mm -hmm. Do you ever recall having conversations with OG queer mentors about aging or menopause? Oh, hell no. <laughs> hell no. I mean, in high, if high, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I'd have been like, could y'all tell me what this is? Because right now I'm sweating under my left titty. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> yes. 
tell me why I can't not sweat, stop sweating under the left tit. Like, tell me why that's happening. Please, God. Somebody. <laughs> Please tell Anybody. me. Anybody. And it's just one side, Lord. <laughs> How does that happen? Why, Lord? <laughs> exactly. Somebody help me, please. You know what I mean? And then oh, I meet yeah. this wonderful, wonderful woman that I'm in a relationship with, yeah. right? Who is younger yeah. than me. I'm 54. She's, Monica's 41. And she's very much like, you're going through menopause. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck is that? Right. <laughs> right. Like, right. What? Middle right. who? And why are we pausing? What does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Because my grandmother's not here, right? Because that's who I would want to have ushered me. And then not only is my grandmother not here, my grandmother has passed. My dad's passed. My two aunts have passed. It's mm. really my siblings and my cousins. And you're, o- and you're older. Yep. So yep. You're, you're figuring this all out. Essentially, yeah. There isn't anyone to be like, oh, you know what I mean? Like to say to my cousin who is so I'm I'm God bless her next month I'll be fifty four, and my cousin is fifty five. She turns fifty five in January, and she's my point of reference because there's nobody above that. So me and her are talking about, it, and we're only what like year change year and a half apart. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm. Calling her like you know about the one tit problem, right? Like is that happening? Yeah, is that happening to you? And she's like, yeah, but more on so under my underarms, and we we bantering. And I'm like, and then I, you know what I mean? And then I'm like, oh, the, my period's here, then it's gone, and then it's came back, and then it's gone, and then it's like, oh, hey, girl, and then I'm like, um, I thought you was gone. Like, come on, is that to scramble or nothing? Folk who who've not seen you, and and I, you know, I'm going to share, of course, your yes. picture as, in the promo. Mo is very serious about their clothes. Mo is very serious about their presentation. It's a whole ass production. So yeah. I can imagine you having on your suit, you got your tie, you got your hat, you been a pad. You ready? And a, and a pad. pad. Like, could you just go? Could you just yeah. go? I gotta stop. And then I'd be like, I gotta be right back because I'm I'm hemorrhaging. <laughs> right? I'm hemorrhaging. Then I gotta go to then I gotta go to the men's bathroom. Right? right, and already you go to the men's bathroom in the store, and you close the door. They automatically think you're boo booing, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I gotta stand there to change my pad or my tampon. Like, what, uh-huh. what kind of crazy? Like, and then it's I then I gotta come out of there and fix my tie. <laughs> what do you feel like are the conversations that you wish you had had, not only with your grandmother but with some OG queer mentors around where you are right now? I actually wish that they could have told me what this means Mm. like what does it mean because there are larger you know there are larger ramifications for when a woman stops having her menses Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and then as you get older your body is also open to other things susceptible to other things when yeah. you stop having your menses right yeah. i mean i'm blessed that my partner is a nurse so she has been able to usher me in from a medical perspective like oh this is why this is happening and that's why this is happening so like when i wake up and i'm drenched in sweat and i'm like where did that come from because when i went to bed i was freezing 
Yeah. <laughs> right? Or what's happening under the left tip? Why is it just there? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, why is why am I sweating on one tie? What is that about? Right. And basically just telling me, like, literally when I started having like the, the night sweats and then mm-hmm. the flashes during the day. And I was like, oh, I'm not feeling well. And, you know, and I'm telling her, and like I said, she was like, yeah, you're going through menopause. I was like, well, I just went to the doctor. She didn't tell me. Mm-hmm. I was like, she didn't, she didn't tell me. Mm-hmm. So the next time I go to the doctor, I'm talking to the doctor and I'm like, yo, what the hell? And she was like, literally no lie with me. She was like, oh, I thought you knew. So I'm saying to myself, well, how the hell do you know? Like, Why would I know? Why would I know? Like, it just, it, it feels like it like went from one thing to another thing overnight. Exactly. It really does. Sometimes, yeah. you know, there are people who maybe have a gradual thing, but I, I like you, I felt like I went from one thing to yeah. like all of a sudden having hot flashes. I was like, well, yep. am I sick? Like, what's up? What's yep. really good? So. Exactly. I also wonder, like outside of the the physical things, which are real, what it's like for you now in, in thinking about aging. Like, mm-hmm. how is this? How is this for you? Like, you know, we talk so much about being OGs, and also I tease them. Like, I don't always feel like an OG. Like, sometimes I yeah. feel like I'm still in my mind in my twenties or my thirties, even though mm-hmm. like I know that I'm not, and it just bugs me out a little bit to realize that I'm 53, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, f- so for me, the one thing I think it does and that's good and bad is that it makes you acutely aware of age in a way that you're not aware of it when you're younger. Mm-hmm. So now at 53, I'm losing friends. Mm, yeah. Right. Like I'm burying friends Mm -hmm. that are my age Mm -hmm. because of not like god forbid something tragic but like health issues yeah you know what i mean like you know they telling me oh this one had a heart attack or that one had a stroke or and this one has cancer and that one and you're not that happens when you're younger but i think there's something in this 50s that makes you acutely aware of that. And then I think that combined with, you know, like what they call the change of life. Sure. And and then very much has you like, wait, is that a part of that? Right. Like death is death and mortality. Yeah. I think about that a lot. I think a lot about us being in this window between our fifties and our early sixties. It feels like this window is like, I almost feel like if we can get to, not I almost, I do feel like this is a time where different people will be leaving us. And my mother passed away when she was 68. So I know in my mind, mm-hmm. that number is so bright in terms of like, that's my goal. I got to get past 68. And if I get past 68, I feel like I could be here for a long time. And it's just like, yeah. and I, I try not to dwell on it, but it's definitely there. It's not something. Yeah. And then when yeah. you have classmates, high school friends, college classmates, we had mm-hmm. a friend last year. He had a heart attack. He was like 51. We were like, generally speaking, a healthy cat. And you're just like, this is that window that we're in that does remind you of your mortality. It really does. Yep. And and you become acutely aware of that Mm -hmm. in a way that almost could disable you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, if you're not careful. That's right. 
That's right. And I think for me, and I'm going to be honest, I think for me, what has helped me has been the relationships that I have established in Bold, oh, right? Because yeah. Bold gave me access to some of the most dynamic Black women mm. that I've ever met and that I get the beyond pleasure to call friends. Mm -hmm. So yourself, Carissa, Aja, Terry, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? I mean, everybody, Neva, Alicia, Denise, you know, Mau, Lisa, like, I mean, the list goes on and on and on of these amazing women, right? Mm -hmm. that, that rage and age mm -hmm. that really holds me. So there's like you and the Rumi, which is Mama Nia and the Terry's, you know what I mean? That, that we're like the OGs that I know I could talk to when I'm going through this that I could call, um, that call and check on me. Right. Because you call Terry call like during this whole time, because like y'all know I'm in New York, you know, it's hectic here, but like, yo, you good. Um, and then there's the Aja's, and the Carissa's, right, who are like these rays of light, who's cool too, but be on a whole different energy. Like, yo, nigga, you good? You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is which is what I need too. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think it's it's attached to what we were mentoring a little earlier around mentors and around just the blessing that black, black women have yeah. been in my life. Yeah. To be able to usher me through womanhood. Right, mm -hmm. especially walking in the world perceived as wanting to be a man, mm -hmm. right? Because you know, folks see me, they see me dressed, and they think, Oh, she wants to be male. And yeah, no, let me be clear, I don't want to be a man, mm -hmm. I'm good, right? I'm, I'm a woman that loves women, and to me, to have women in my life who accepted that because there are a lot of other women who don't and there are even more men who don't especially you know being in community and doing the work we do and loving on the community hard to then have people of the community being so like aggressive towards yeah. you around sexuality that actually 99.999 percent of the time had absolutely nothing to do with them like right. like i'm no threat to you dude and if i'm a threat to you then you need to question your own manhood right, right. because what's up? What's going like on? right like that's not just because my girl is fine that doesn't take away from you from you and your girl right that fear um, is a big thing that fe that fear that has been planted inside of us from white supremacy and patriarchy and misogyny to look at someone and mm -hmm. then that fear that fe they don't they don't want to show fear so they show anger yes exactly and we don't have to do it and especially now as i'm getting older mm -hmm. um and i'm changing like my body is changing i'm realizing that my moods are changing too mm -hmm. as you're aging one like you know you get mood swings thank goodness and i'm gonna knock on all kinds of wood that i don't have the extreme mood swings that I know some people have had. I'm not experiencing that. But I realize that the mood swings that I have is that as I'm getting older, there's just shit I don't care about, right? It's just like the shit that I cared about pre-50 and now at 53, I don't care. Because like in my life right now, like I want genuine loving folk. So like there's some people who fell by the wayside, who I've known Years and years and years, but that's how that goes because the 53 mo and the 23 mo, two different people. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? And the 53 mode has to be aware of all of that, aware of my body changing, aware of like, like I got, like I have fibroids. Mm-hmm. There's a question like, do I get them removed or what happens to them during menopause, right? Now that's a question I should be having with my female doctor. Right. Right. But if I don't ask her that, she's not going to talk about that. So right. it, it also talks about like, it also brings to like healthcare. Right. And older black women right. and healthcare and talking to your doctor, but like around like now, around now with um with this COVID, I don't never think I me I have never talked to my doctor so much in my life. Y'all got a whole nother relationship now. Girl, this chick on me. I mean, she's sending texts and all this shit every other week. You okay? You in the house? You this? And I'm like, bitch, you should have been this attentive. But I was telling you, I was going through menopause, and and I'm sweating under my left tit. Now you want to kill me with information? Now you want to talk to me? I told you I'm sweating. Now you're all comfortable. Now you got all kinds of information for me. <laughs> you know what's interesting, and um, and I'm gonna I want to start to wrap us up. I think that people don't realize that the umbrella of reproductive justice begins when you take your first breath mm-hmm. and ends when you take your last breath, and that we hyperfixate in this. One, we have to fix it in our community and our culture and society on youthfulness, right? So people mm-hmm. think about, you're going to have a baby. You don't want to have a baby. What you going to do? But menopause is absolutely about reproductive justice because it's about your bodily autonomy, Mo. And like you being able to know what the hell is going on with your body, what you need, what are your questions to be fully seen, be fully seen for exactly who you are, no matter how you identify, no matter how you walk into a space no matter who you are. Yep. And that feels like a really big ass thing. And I do think that COVID is, you know, it's ratcheting up like people's visibility. We're like, okay, listen, I don't want you to fall into one of these cracks that are obvious. There's so many huge ass cracks in the system that are becoming even more obvious to people. Mm-hmm. And we know the crack that, that already existed for black women. We are, we know that. Yep. All right. So, yep. So the way that this thing kind of like wraps up is we've been doing listener letters, but you know, we're quarantining. People have not been actually reaching out around listener letters to ask questions. So we've just been letting anybody who I interview, like make an offering. Like Mm -hmm. if there was something that you would want to say, I really am appreciating so much how much love and gratitude you have shown your mentors. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to, make an offering either to these elder sisters who looked out for you or these younger folk who are coming behind you around being able to be who you want to be, claiming your identity. What would that be? What kind of offering would you want to make to the guide? So I think it would be an encouragement. It would really be an encouragement to live fuller, right? So for me, I... I came out, I think I was 21 or something like that, but I I knew way before that. And I think that I would have come out earlier. And even after I came out um, and I lived, if I had to go back, I would have lived a little louder when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what I would offer up is an encouragement to people to be unafraid to live a little louder Mm. and not be afraid of, like I was saying before, taking up space 
and not being afraid of the angry black women in the room or all of these, you know, connotations that they have around what it looks like when black women claim space. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it really would be an offering, um, one of first and foremost of mentorship to anybody else who's going through this, who can say, Hey, you know, I would love to be able to, I walk in the world as a out black lesbian. I would love to be able to talk to somebody who's gone through this. So there's that offering. And then just a real sincere and heartfelt thank you because the mentor that I had, Candace Boyce has transitioned. Another one, Regina Shaver, she's transitioned. Um, so a real sincere thank you to them. Um, and I know that, you know, that they're watching over me somehow, but a sincere thank you to them of seeing something in me that helped push me forward. And then it is a sincere thank you to y'all, right? And for, like I said, to all the Black women that I call my sisters, you know, yourself and the Carissas, and the, you know, the Mama Nia's and, and Denise and Aja and Terry and all of these women who I really, really consider my sisters. And I have 12 siblings, but these women have helped me transition into this, like this conversation we're having around menopause, the fact that I could have this conversation with somebody, you know, in a real way that, that, yo, I'm going through some shit. Like, could you tell me what this is, is something that I didn't think I would have since my grandmother wasn't here. So I think it would be a sincere, like, thank you and thank you and thank you and thank you. And thank you to the ancestors for knowing to put people in my life that could help usher me through this. Because if it wasn't for y'all and like my partner, I don't know, I'd just be sitting on the corner with a sweaty titty. <laughs> Trying to figure it all out. I'm glad you said something funny because you know I was in here in tears. <laughs> I was like, don't cry hysterical vision of you sitting on the corner in New York with a sweaty left just, just, just all just wet. wet right here. In a, in a tie. Being like, yeah, like yo, what's up with this person? Like, what's this person? What does this mean? What does this mean? Yeah, what? you know what I mean? So uh, that that would be what I offer up. It's just literally heartfelt, sincere thank yous. Oh, this is perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey folks, I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of the Black Girl's Guide to Surviving Menopause. I wanted to take a moment to remind you that in the episode notes, you can find the link to our website, blackgirlsguidetosurvivingmenopause.com. And when you go there, I hope you will consider becoming a patron and supporter of this podcast and the original content that we create and curate that centers the stories and voices of Black women and Black femmes. If you're not in a space where you can make a sustaining contribution monthly, please consider making a one-time donation. I will list the Cash App, Venmo, and PayPal also in the episode notes. Y'all, we've got an announcement to make. We've got gear. Yes, that's right. You asked for it, so we have it. We have set up a store, online store, at bonfire.com. You know the link is already down in the episode notes. So go check it out. We've got t-shirts, we've got tank tops, we've got canvas bags. I hope you'll enjoy it. And if you decide to purchase something, take a picture and tag us and make the hashtag BGG 
2SM. I also want to remind you all about listener letters. We really do want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on the podcast? What questions do you have? What episodes would you like to hear? You can send your listener letters to decolonizingthecrone at gmail.com. Once again, that's decolonizingthecrone at gmail.com. Remember, we really do want to hear from you. I hope everybody is taking care of themselves and staying safe. And remember, we're all in this together and we will get through this. I will see you soon on the dark side of the moon. Thank you.